Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our awesome sponsors Najahi Events. More about them later. On today's episode, oh my god, and I say that quite a lot don't I? Oh my god I get excited but today I've got somebody that I have consumed an awful lot of his content. 20 books, not only just 20 books, 20 New York best-selling books have been produced by the awesome, awesome guest coming on the show. Let me give you a bit of a rundown. A thought leader in the marketing and business world, sometimes referred to as the ultimate entrepreneur in the information age. He writes about marketing, advertising, leadership, and including best-selling books, All Marketers Are Liars, and Purple Cow. His work covers a range of subjects from the post-industrial revolution to being remarkable and from the spread of ideas to knowing when to quit. He founded Yo-Yo Dime, one of the first internet-based direct marketing firms, which was eventually bought by Yahoo. He introduced the concept of permission marketing and in the early days of the internet, which recognizes and respects the power of consumers. He also founded Squidoo.com, a website where users can share links and information about an idea or a topic of their choice. He professes the idea of making information available for everyone in the world and starting a global conversation on business and marketing in which everyone from everywhere can take an active part. His latest book is called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. The book will help readers get unstuck and find the courage to make and share creative work. He insists that writer's block is a myth, that consistency is far more important than authenticity, and that experiencing the imposter syndrome is a sign that you're a well-adjusted human. Most of all, he shows you what it takes to turn your passion from a private distraction to a productive contribution, the one you've been seeking to share all along. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't worked out who he is so far, this is the amazing, and I mean really amazing, Seth Godin. Cue the music! So, uh, Seth, first of all, thanks very much for coming to join me on the show. I know I spoke to you just not so long ago for the Sharjah Book Fair event, but this is going to be something a bit different. But look, there's just a lot of people, whenever I mention your name in this part of the world, that are really excited by the fact that uh, you're on the podcast, but also by the kind of work that you've produced over the years. And it kind of spans all ages. And this is what interested me. You know, I, I'm, I, you know, I regard myself, I'm 50 years old now, that the younger generation don't yes, necessarily know much about me. But I've had people in their early 20s all the way to people in their 60s and their 70s that have been like, wow, Seth, you got Seth, he's great. I read this book, I read that book. Do you, do you have that the world over, do you think? Or is, is, that, is that something you're aware of? Well, <clears throat> we have to start, first, thanks for having me. But um, almost nobody knows who I am, which is great. I have no <laughs> desire to be known by more people. Uh, the people who follow my work do not have much in common in terms of age or income or profession. What they have in common is they ask themselves the question, is this all there is? They are creatively restless and want to be a contribution. That is what they all have in common. And it doesn't seem to change whether you're in South Africa or whether you're 18 years old. It's interesting you say that. And I suppose, would you regard yourself, and I know this is a really weird question, so the, the fame, 
and being well known. You say people don't know you, but people do. And so I'm going to argue because if, if you go and look at my Instagram account, you know, there are more people saying, Seth, okay, in terms of being a guest on my show than many others. You know, I think you rank up there with the likes of Tony Robbins for people that are in my world anyway. Do, do, do you get the fame thing? Well, so, but that's the key is the smallest viable audience. The overlap between my audience and your audience is very high. Um, Tony Robbins reaches 50 times as many people as I do. 50. And people who are actually well-known, uh, you know, the folks who are on television stuff reach a thousand times as many people as me. So fame by itself, I find is a cost of doing business that should be avoided. There's very little upside to having a stranger think they know you. What I am trying to do is find a small group of people who actually want to do the work on their own. And if I can help narrate for them, that's my job. Mm, well said. Let's talk about, before we go any further, let's talk about the new book. Um, I'm almost at the end of it now. So I've gone through, I've enjoyed my morning walk and my evening walks are with you as my company for those walks. And I, if, if I'm really honest with you, when I first started read, uh, listening to it, um, it took me a little while to get into it. You know, the first the first bit took me, and then some points started to grab me, and I started to understand the gist of what you were trying to do. Was was the journey to uh, of writing the book fun for you? There are parts of writing books that I find thrilling, um, and there are other parts that you do because it's part of the work, and um, that tends to change over time. For me, always I've done one hundred and forty books because I used to be a book packager. For me, the funnest part has always been when it snaps into focus, when you can visualize that there's a book. Like I did one book that came in a milk carton. And like, as soon as I saw it, at that point, I wish someone else could have done everything else. Right? It's like, okay, now, but I don't have a team. It's just me here. And so you do the rest of it too. And in the case of the book taking a little while to resonate. I like that because if I have something that's super short, it should be a blog post. If I have something that needs to warm up over time, then I then it deserves to be a book. Okay, good. Tell us about the book then so everyone can understand what it's about and why you wrote it. Well, either you ship creative work or you don't. If you don't ship creative work, that means that you are a cog in the industrial system. It means you're replaceable. It means we can get someone else to do your task. But if you do ship creative work, it means we're counting on you to show up in the world with something that might not work, something original, something daring, something generous. And how do you do that? No one ever taught you. So I tried to lay out here in 200 plus little chapters how to think about being a productive, creative professional. And do you think you accomplished that? Well, I'm hearing that I did. I wouldn't have published it if I wasn't optimistic. But I know it's not for everyone. That's on purpose. So a few people have said this makes no sense to them whatsoever. And they're going to go back to doing it the way they did it. Fine. But other people are already telling me it has unblocked them. Um, you know, what Roseanne Cash wrote on the back of the book is stunning to me. Uh, Roseanne is one of my creative heroes. And to hear that I was able to help her get to the next level. Um, you know, for people on your side of the pond, Peter Gabriel is a creative genius. When, you, when people like that tell you that even though they are uh, producing at the peak of human creativity, that there's something in this method, that what more could you hope for? Yeah, absolutely.
Okay, right. You're the you're the kind of godfather of email marketing as far as the world is concerned, and I am Please sure. Don't blame me. <laughs> well, you know, I come from a world where we, we we didn't have that at first. We used to have stuff. I remember when the post you you have in America, you have these post boxes. We don't. We have a letterbox. It comes through the front door, and the mail used to come through the front door. There'd be nine envelopes, ten envelopes. You'd tear nine of them up, and one of them was a bill. And that was invariably what you always did. And because you just knew there was something in there, even if even if people got clever and started to handwrite envelopes with stamps yeah. instead of franking machine stuff on there, we used to just, my mum would pick it up, she'd tear it all up, throw it in the bin, and then she'd pick up the bill and go tut as she walked through the kitchen with a coffee in her hand. And so when, when, I, when I look at how that evolved, and saw that, you know, as you, you well know, how emails became so, so important and so cool. I remember the first time I learned about emails. I was in Nigeria in a place called Port Harcourt. And I was working there. My dad worked for a company called Shell, an oil company. And one of the guys that worked there, his wife and my wife were good friends. And so I went to his office one day and I'm like, what do you do? And he was an IT guy. He said, well, we've got this system where we send messages out and they all go out at midnight, these things called emails. They go out at midnight to head office and then they come back the next day. And I was like, what, like a fax? And it's like, no, not like a fax. There's no paper involved. I'm like, what do you mean there's no paper involved? He said, well, we type it here, it goes through, and then the next day they respond. And, and I'm like, well, how many of these things do you send? And he was like, a thousands. And I was like, wow, that's just incredible. Does, that, does it work? You know, how do people get there? So that, you know, the very binary start of my experience with it. But then when I got, as I've, I've probably said before, when I got my AOL account, you know, I remember that, you know, that, that time when my plug-in into my laptop, this AOL thing pops up and uh, all of a sudden I've got email and I'm like, this is remarkable. It's amazing. But what has happened over the years with the kind of whole email marketing thing is for me is that the word marketing has tended to be confused with sales. And it's, it's so prevalent now that I don't know what the difference is in some respects between people that call themselves um, online marketers or online salespeople. Now, people don't generally say, I'm an online salesperson, but I'm like, is that not what you are? Okay, so first, let's decode why this all changed. You already said it, but it might have gone past people. Email doesn't have stamps. If email had stamps, so many things would be better because no one sent a piece of junk mail to every single house in London. You can't afford it. Uh -huh. You had to be selective about who you sent your mail to because stamps cost money. Mm -hmm. And so in 1987, 88, I realized that free stamps were a real problem. That's when I invented email marketing. Because what I said was free stamps means that there's going to be spam. And spam, to quote the brilliant Monty Python guys, spam, 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 and eggs. This is going to be too much spam. And people don't want spam. And we're going to build systems to stop spam. We've done a terrible job of building systems to stop spam, by the way. But I knew that spam was not a way forward. And I knew that evil, selfish, short-term, narcissistic marketers were going to do it anyway. So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is anticipated personal and relevant messages that you just send to people you want to send them to because the trust is worth it to you to self-regulate. So that's the idea behind permission marketing. But then something occurred, which is that Google figured out how to make a trillion dollars 
by uh, measuring every ad and how many clicks it got. That's Google's entire business model. That means internet marketing tends to be direct marketing, measured marketing, marketing that we can do today for $10 and make $20 tomorrow. And that's not the marketing most people grew up with. That marketing is the marketing of billboards and advertising and shelf space. And we don't know exactly what's working, but we're going to put on a show. And so when we say marketing feels like sales, well, sales has always been measured. Sales is, did someone make an order after you went to their house? So marketing, when it's direct marketing, feels a lot like sales because we can measure it. And measured marketing, which is the marketing you often see on the internet, tends to race to the bottom. It tends to be the flat belly diet. It tends to be stuff that's sort of annoying, but if you can get enough people to buy it, you can buy more ads. Whereas the marketing that some people love, which is the marketing of you know Coke commercials or the marketing of making that car more beautiful, that marketing is hard to measure. That marketing doesn't do well on the internet. And so there's this bifurcation between spam and permission and between uh, direct marketing and brand marketing. And so it's super confusing. And then on top of it, we got all these selfish short-term people who are uh, just annoying us. Okay, so is it possible that it will go, and, I, and, I, and, I, and if I get a letter comes through the door now, I open every single piece of mail that comes through the door. Sure, it's a treat. Is that a good way now? Is that a more of a, a recurrence of what worked in the past and everyone got tired of what became immediate? Then should should people think about kind of um, mail? We call them mail shots. Should think of people think about mail shots in that way as well from a marketing perspective, a direct marketing perspective? Um, well, direct marketers test everything and they measure everything. So if they're going to figure out how to make it work, they're, they're already doing it. The mistake is the strategic mistake, not the tactical mistake. And it's this, attention is precious. They're not making any more of it. It's worth more than ever before. Trust is worth even more. Don't burn trust to get attention. It's not worth it. And once you do get attention, once you do earn trust, figure out how to make that pay for a long time, not a short time. So in the US, there's a company called BarkBox that's worth a billion dollars. BarkBox lets you subscribe to toys and treats for your dog. So every month you get a box of toys and treats for your dog. Right. Now, not too many people want this, but a million do. So if you've got a million people paying you $30 a month, month in and month out, you've got a billion dollar company. So people like BarkBox can say, oh, a new customer is worth $500 to us. So you can write a handwritten, actual handwritten letter to an actual human being saying, we think you might want to check out BarkBox because it's worth it to you. That's the opposite of the spam and prey model of let's bother a million people because maybe 10 people will send us a dollar. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to see marketing shift to honoring the attention that people have offered us by creating things that people engage with over time not this quick hit annoying thing. Marketing when it comes to FMCG type stuff, does that, uh, and brands, does that seem to be an easier thing? Whether it's the Johnson & Johnsons, the Unilevers and these organizations. I mean, we saw something unusual with um, um, Dollar Shave Club, 
when it came out a few years ago. Um, a, you know, a very funny video that, that literally went mad as soon as it came out. And you could see that they had problems trying to service the amount of clients that they got from off making that offer. But yep. that, that was at the end of the day, though, FMCG, that was a fast moving consumer good. And so for me, it's kind of like, what, where is brand easy? Because everyone talks about building brand and brand creates trust. But when you're an entrepreneur, solopreneur, and all these things that people are called nowadays, how do you go about doing that? How do you build a brand when you've actually got to focus on building a business first? I, well, so let's talk about Dollar Shave Club because I didn't know you were going to bring it up, but I just foreshadowed it. Number one, it's a subscription business, which was not the case for Schick or Gillette or Remington, meaning that the value of a new customer to Dollar Shave Club is over a hundred dollars so they could afford and that video wasn't an accident they could afford to put a lot in up front because they were honoring your attention number two is they began as direct marketers in the sense that they only cared about who was going to click and buy everyone else didn't matter but over time now that they've sold for whatever it was a billion dollars they have a brand in the old sense so the fork in the road for big companies is that Kraft, Unilever, and most of all, Procter & Gamble are built on television. That is where they came from. That is all they know how to do. Television got them shelf space. Shelf space got them television. And around and around it goes. But in the world of Amazon, there is no shelf space. And in the world of the internet, there is no television. So the two things that make those companies magical are going away really fast. And they know it. And they're freaking out which is why they're buying direct marketing subscription companies, because it's the only way for them to go forward. Okay. So that's just a little aside here in our masterclass with Spencer. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, the question you ask is how do you build a business while you're doing trust? And the answer is back to where we started the smallest viable audience. If you can't make it work with a hundred customers, what makes you think you're going to make it work with a million? You have the ability on the internet to find the hundred customers. That doesn't mean it's going to be a super profitable business. I didn't say that. I said, can you find a hundred customers who will eagerly pay you for what you make? If you can't start over, don't raise money and do it again. That's foolish. Start over and find something that people actually want that they're eager to pay for. You do that by earning their trust, by making a promise, by keeping the promise and repeating not by hustling, because no one wants to get hustled. And so if you were to think about the ways of earning trust over, over the years, you know, people, people come to the businesses that I own because I've spent a lot of time trying to, to educate. But I tell you what, it was a long and painful, to be honest with you, journey. You know, we're, we're, we're I don't know how many, hundreds and hundreds of videos, you know, stacks and stacks of posts, stacks of blog posts. I mean, it's gone on and on and on. And, and for a long time, you, you would ask yourself, why? But just like before I was on the call with you today, an hour before some guy calls me up, he's like, I've been following you for two years, I need help, can you help me? And, 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 and uh, the situation's been challenging through COVID, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I'm like, great, thanks for reaching out to me. But for a lot of people, building trust how do you build trust? You know, even if you're trying to build trust in a small community. I mean, I used to tease the the team I worked with a few years ago. I'm like, there's five people that follow me and five people that like my stuff. And they're like, no, 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 there's more people. I'm like, well, they're hiding. <laughs> and I've put a lot of effort into this. So where am I going wrong? So, so where do people typically go wrong when they try and create trust? I wrote a post a few years ago called Instant Yes. 
And the question is, um, how many people in your circle, if you asked them for something, would instantly say yes, right? When you were eight years old and you went to school, there was at least two people who would say, I forgot my lunch. Can I have half your sandwich, right? There were at least two people who would say yes to that. And it's the same thing. It's just confusing because there's strangers on the other end of the line, but it's exactly the same thing. What did you do to earn the trust that someone would loan you half their sandwich, right? It's exactly the same thing. I don't need to teach people how to do that. I just need to remind them that they have done it in their lives. And that is the path forward, is to figure out how to be human in an environment that doesn't seem to reward humanity. It seems to reward Kim Kardashian, but that's the exception. It's not the rule. Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, uh, Kim Kardashian's a good example. People see that. And, and, and also people, what, people are so obsessed with followers nowadays, aren't they? They're, they're more obsessed with numbers of followers than they are with anything else. And I watch this, some of this, you know, uh, these, these success resources events and whatnot, where they've got speakers that are selling something from stage. And I watch the audience and I see that you know, everybody wants a million followers. You know, what's the, what's the fastest way to get a million followers? Because that makes sense. And the people that aren't at those courses are generally jumping around in a bikini or whatever it may be. And so for, for, the, for, for some crazy reason, that seems to be the obsession. You know, do you want 500 people that know and like and trust you? Or do you want a million people that have got no idea who you are or are following just because you want the number? Yeah. So uh, a friend of the family about four years ago was very sad. And I asked her why she was sad. And she said, well, I have a rule about Instagram. I don't want to go negative. I said, what does that mean? Go negative. She said, my rule is I can't follow more people than follow me. And I only have 800 followers and I want to follow more people, but that would mean going negative, going <laughs> out of balance. And that was the stupidest thing I ever heard. So for her birthday, which was the next week, I bought her 15,000 followers for $89. And she instantly knew who it was. And then she was fine. She was fine. So if you want a million followers, go buy them. They're, because they're not real anyway. Whatever you're going to need to do to get to a million followers isn't going to be the work you want to keep doing. So don't put yourself into a pretzel just to make Mark Zuckerberg happy because you are not Mark Zuckerberg's customer. You are his product. He is making you unhappy so he can make more money. Okay, let's talk about you as an entrepreneur. Okay, because I want to talk about the, the business that you sold to Yahoo. And I, th I, th I think that people know you for a lot for being the author of so many books, but you, you're, you're an on, uh, what year was it that you set that business up, the first one? Yo-Yo um, uh, Dine. It was called Yo-Yo Dine. It was one of the first internet companies in the world. Um, we first were online services. So I think we started in 1990 or 91 before okay. the world, before the World Wide web. Um, people said I was delusional. Nobody, there was no one banging on the door asking to fund us. Uh, so it was self-funded for four years. Um, and uh, we invented email marketing and our open rates for the emails we sent were 76% and our response rate was 35%. So we didn't spam one person, not one time. 76% open rate, 76 and 35% conversion rate. So one in three were converting. They were, we didn't sell people anything. We were engaging their time and attention mm -hmm. on behalf of brands. There was 
very little commerce going on online in those days. And when you were when you were knocking out those emails, were they were they very tightly structured or were they war and peace as well? But people were consuming the war and peace content. No, no. So that so the, this was the question. Once I figured out the thing about the stamps, why would someone open an email? Why would someone write back? Right? Like, how do you do that? And what I wrote about in permission marketing was this was long before online commerce. Um, why not let them play a game? So we invented online game shows and we were the first people to give away a million dollars on the internet. And we gave away a Babe Ruth autographed baseball and lots and world cup tickets. So the idea was each email had a question in it. And if you wrote back with your answer, you got one step closer to the finals. And we discovered that if we could get someone to start playing one of our game shows by email, they would keep playing because they didn't want to break their streak. They didn't want to lose what they might've won. And then we would go to sponsors and say, we'll make a game about what you do. So one of the things we did was um, you can pick which kind of car do you want to win? Do you want to win a, a Jaguar? Do you want to win a Jeep or do you want to win a whatever? And over the next eight uh, emails, we're going to ask you a question about the car you want to win. And every time you answer a question right, you get another chance to win that car. So we gave away three cars, but we educated half a million people about the car they dreamed of. So that was the model of points and attention. And so the, the, the emails were, some of them were you know 10 paragraphs long, but most of them were shorter than that. And what we discovered, what I thought was people on the internet wanted to prove how smart they were. But what I discovered was uh, dumb questions got better response rates than hard questions. And so we moved more and more to sweepstakes and less and less to skill. Did that disappoint you? Very much. I'm still disappointed about it. Yeah, the way the nation right, is. So the, the law, as long as we're doing ancient history trivia, the law in the US is you can't charge money for a sweepstakes because then it becomes a lottery and it's against the law. It's gambling. So how do you do a tiebreaker in a game of skill because you can't mix random and skill in certain kinds of games. So what we did was if there were eight or 10 people tied at the end of a game, we gave them all a phone number to call and they would be on a conference call. And what we said is we're going to give you a series of questions all at once. And the first person who comes up with the answer to this relay race wins. So it had to be a series of things where you take the answer from question one and put it into question two and question. And then like the last thing, you just have to blurt out a three digit number. And it was great because we would read off the thing, hear them writing it down. And then there'd be this silence on the call because they, they were playing for you know something worth $50,000. There's silence on the phone, it's super fraught. And you can just hear people and there's no Google so you can't quickly get the answer. And I love that. That was one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. We could never do something like that today. What, what prompted you to sell the business? We now had competitors who were copying our work um, and they had 50, 60, $80 million in funding. And we had total funding throughout the whole project of four and a half million dollars. So they were going to our $100,000, $500,000 clients and doing the same work for free because they were just trying to get big. So I had two choices, which is go raise a lot more money, which I could have done, or 
uh, declare victory and let my team build the next generation of stuff with the biggest company on the internet. And it was the hardest thing I ever did. Um, and I'm still trying to recover from it. Ah, really emotionally attached. And when you look at the, the decision between raising money and selling a business, what do you think, let's, let's take all of the emotions out of it. Practically, what's the most challenging thing to do for a business? Is a business finding a buyer or raising capital? So there are two kinds of businesses that sell in this age. There are businesses that sell like a used car, in which case you're going to get paid a small multiple of earnings. And there's just people who are looking for a bargain. And those businesses are very hard to sell because most people who are buying say, why would you sell a business unless you're trying to charge more than it's worth? Because if it's really worth a lot, you'll just keep running it or hire someone to run it. Then there's a business, the way M&M Mars just bought Kind Bars for $5 billion, where the combination of the company being bought and the company buying it is worth more than them separately. And that synergy, so Yahoo stock went up more than the price of our company in one day. On the announcement of buying my company, Yahoo made a profit just in that one day. And we ended up contributing you know, at least a billion dollars worth of value to what Yahoo was building. Um, that is rare. And if you've got one of those, you should sell because you just found, it's like, you know, giving vitamin B, vitamin C to someone with scurvy. I mean, it's this magical combination. Um, if there isn't a magical combination, it's very hard to sell your business. You can do it, but don't expect that there's going to be a giant payday. So there's a, there's a company here in the UAE called Bayut, and they're the first unicorn. And Bayut is Ara Arabic for house or home, sorry. And so they're a property portal. And they've been buying, along the way, they've been buying other property portals up. And they're three brothers that founded the company from Pakistan. One was at MIT, one at Oxford, one at Cambridge, but all working class kids. Like dad was a policeman. They paid their way through university. Um, and, so, and, they're, and they're great guys. I've got a huge amount of respect for all three of them. And I'm very fond of the company as well. And they recently they they uh, purchased and uh, a company called Dubizzle, which was in a similar space, classifieds as well, and brought them together. And there we have the first uh, first unicorn over here. But they, I said to them, when you first raised money, and their first their first fundraise was I think seven million dollars. And I said, what did you do? I sat, I sat with all three of them. What did you do? And they went, the three of us said, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. We went to every event possible in America, in the UK over the course of a year. We networked our butt off every single time we could. We did, just had no idea. And then eventually somebody, not any of the events, but somebody that had heard about us from a friend that was at an event. And we were very protective about what we had. And so we weren't so keen to share too much information. And, and, and they said it was a real, it was a real slog. Once they got the 7 million in, then everything, everything became easier because they learned a lot. But I, I, a lot of people want to raise money for businesses. A lot of people talk about that, but they don't, they don't know where to start. Well, most people want to raise money for a business, want to raise money to pay for expenses. And investors don't want you to do that. Investors want to have you buy assets. And so a business that successfully raises money is not a business that needs money for expenses. It is one that is going to acquire an asset that will pay over and over again. In the digital world, the asset is not a building. It is the trust and traction with customers. So 
when Jeff was building Amazon, he instructed his team, pay $35 for any customer, any way you can get them. If someone comes to you and says, I'll do a promotion, we'll get a thousand customers, $35,000 on the spot, no questions asked. Because he knew a customer was worth more than $35. He was buying an asset. That's different than paying your employees, paying, 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 all those things, because then the money doesn't come back. And so it is fraught to uh, read the media, decide that your way to riches is to hustle your way to raising some money and then magically you're going to have a unicorn. It is much more effective to say, how do I find a group of people that if I can create value for them, they will tell the others. And it's that word of mouth, people telling other people. So you didn't hear about this unicorn because they bought ads. You heard about them because someone told you about them because they built something that was worth talking about. And that journey, it's still marketing. No matter what, we're not going to suspend the rules of attention or commerce just because you want to build a business. When you look at businesses nowadays in today's market, today's economy, and you look at them and you admire them, and I don't necessarily mean the, the monsters like the Amazons, but you look at businesses as admire them. Which ones do you admire, uh, uh, the leadership and, and the company and what they're doing? Well, I'll tell you one. Um, Sean Askinozzi was a uh, super successful attorney in Missouri, US. He never lost a trial in 20 years of defending murderers and drug dealers. Um, and then he burned out and he started a chocolate company. And he started one of the very first chocolate companies in the US that made chocolate from scratch. But what Sean does is that turns out people who grow cocoa beans are the poorest people on earth. Uh, they make $3 a day. Sean buys his beans directly from them, making their income go up by a factor of five. Not only that, he goes there and meets them face to face. He also does open book management with his team. So everybody knows all the math. And he also only sells directly to retailers. He uses no um, middlemen. And Sean doesn't have a hundred million dollar business, but he has a successful business and it's one that he's proud of. And the products are ones to be proud of. And those are the kinds of businesses we need because it's businesses like that that make things better. The goal is not how much money can you make? It's how big a difference can you make? And do you, think, do you think a lot of people when they get into business aren't always thinking that? Do you think that money is, is such a massive driver and, and, and being fed to them in so many different ways about what money can provide you that that creates the drive for most businesses? And there's just a minority that are focused on, we want to serve, we want to make a difference, we want to solve a problem. So if you go to um, Yale or maybe even Oxford, I don't know about Oxford, but if you go to Yale and talk to the freshman class and ask them, what do you want to do when you graduate? The number of people who say, I want to go work at Goldman Sachs or an investment bank is zero. And then if you go back four years later, they are the number one industry that people go work for. What happened, right? Mm. What happened is we indoctrinate ourselves. We brainwash ourselves. We announce to ourselves, well, if I go to law school, then I'll have to work a lot of hours after that. And then I'll have power and then I'll have leverage and then I'll make the world better. Except now you're 45 and it's all gone by. So um, I think that built into our culture is an indoctrination about a lot of things. Indoctrination about caste, 
indoctrination about status and indoctrination about money. And there's a generation coming along that I believe sees that, and I'm hoping they'll do something about it. I suppose you've had the American dream kind of rammed down your throats for hundreds of years. And so go out and get your piece of the American dream rather than, um, which is always, always about wealth and status and, uh, and power, I guess, isn't it? When, when I, when I, you know, I, I used to work a lot. They were a big client of my Nike when I was uh, in Europe, in Amsterdam, before I came here, the European headquarters are there. And I kind of knew a bit of the backstory of Nike with Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman, his coach. Um, but I didn't know much until I started to read his book. When I read his book, the the the, the fact that he because he, he, he hated advertising for him, ad, advertising was just something he just he wasn't into that at all. Um, and he and, and the business itself was he just he was a runner and he loved running shoes. That was his thing, you know. And then you know, he went on his travels. He got to Tokyo and uh, and he met Onatsu Tiger and got into selling their shoes and whatnot. But he wasn't. He wasn't a guy that was crazy about business. He was more so crazy about running shoes. And by accident, I feel like a, a big part of that journey worked by accident as opposed to on purpose. And I love stories like that. I love it when people, you know, they go out, they try and do something, but the number one driver isn't, I want to be a millionaire, which seems to be what I hear a lot, you know? Yeah, I, um, I'm not a fan of Phil Knight. I think that um, the book has some lovely stories in it, but the story that of what happened with Sears, I think, and his uh, overwhelming desire to win aren't necessarily fables I'd want to tell a kid. So um, Sears used to run ads in the Sunday paper called a freestanding insert where there'd be coupons and stuff. And Nike had a deal with Sears, which is that Sears agreed never to run an ad for Nike in their Sunday circular. And some low level person at Sears made a mistake and ran an ad for Nike. So Nike pulled all their sneakers from every Sears store. And this was a big deal. So Sears called and called and called and Phil would not return any of their calls. And finally they said, we're gonna come to Oregon to meet you. And his secretary said, fine, come on this date. And two senior executives from Sears came they made them wait in the lobby where every single person walked by and knew who they were. And they were never allowed in to see Phil. That he intentionally set them up to just humiliate them for a whole day and then have to fly back to Chicago. And the thing is, you know, when you look at the multi-billion dollar stadium built it, you know, it, it, for the, the team in Oregon, et cetera, it's possible to play the game of capitalism to make things better without having to win everything. And um, I'm not sure trying to win everything is the lesson we need to teach. Well said. And lastly, what, as you've gone through your, your life, I mean, you're, you're a few years older than me, but not so many, as you, as you've gone through your life and, and evolved, do you think you've always been, you've always had the same message and you've had the same desired outcome or do you think things have changed for you and if so what what do you want what do you want the world to remember you for when you hang up your boots I, there was a long time that i was a struggling entrepreneur uh, i was near bankruptcy for seven years so it's much harder to focus on the long game when you feel like you might be drowning and um i feel like 
as I started to gain my footing, I thought much more deeply about the repercussions of what I was saying and making and bringing to the world. Uh, I did a book a really long time ago called Email Addresses of the Rich and Famous. And Roger Ebert's email was in that book. He was the movie critic. And he was really angry about it. And now I know why. And I thought the book was super clever, but it didn't make anything better. And I should have realized it was going to be misused by spammers. That's not why I wrote it, but that's what ended up happening. And um, so I got much more serious about the fact that our words carry weight and our actions carry even more weight. But mostly I'm a teacher and I would like to be known by what the people I taught taught other people. That's my goal. What a wonderful way to end this episode. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Seth Godin. Thank you, Spencer. That was fun. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. What, what you just learned there in that 40 minutes is just a tiny fraction of what Seth has to offer. And I'm glad that he shared what he shared, but... I could sit and talk to him for many, many hours trying to get as much information out of him as possible. And as you could see, pearls of wisdom, great experiences, great you know, challenges as well along the way, for goodness sake. You know, let's not just think it was all sunshine and rainbows. But to understand what he believes you need to do to create trust, why you don't need millions of followers, why it isn't important to have a bunch of random people following you, why it's important to create trust. You know, we know it's important to create trust, but why? And when you take these pieces of information, these nuggets, these snippets, and then you apply them into your own business, it will only serve you. So until next time, we'll see you soon.